0: Today's episode of the Ramp podcast features Holly Danko, the former chief people officer at Unison. Holly's background is super unique and blends a lot of what we pay attention to here at Ramp all in one. Holly was formerly a sales professional who worked with high net worth individuals, musicians, lottery winners, and etc. to maximize return on their investments. She parlayed that into a career in people operations, building culture from the ground up at Unison, where she installed several key processes and created initiatives to democratize access to their hiring process and eliminate bias from their organization. We spoke about several things, including the future of work, how to democratize hiring, and what the professional world will look like, One, three, five and even beyond years out. I know you're going to love some of the tactical and strategic guidance Holly instills upon us during this episode of The Ramp Podcast. Let's jump in
1: you're listening to the ramped podcast a podcast connecting industry heavyweights with the next generation of talented professionals we're on a mission to build transparency into the practical realities of your early career by exploring how the world's best did it themselves our guidance will help you discover and launch a successful career in sales technology finance and many other industries
0: All right, everyone, welcome back to The Ramp Podcast. Today, I am joined with a special guest, it's Holly Danko. Holly, how are you?
1: I'm great, how are you doing, Danny?
0: I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Well, before we jump into all of our questions today, we all wanna know who is Holly Danko?
1: We don't have a lot of time, so I'll just keep it short and brief, but again, my name is Holly Danko. Most recently, I was chief people officer of a company called Unison, which is a San Francisco-based FinTech company. Right now, I am taking some much-needed time off to travel and recharge before I start my next uh, position.
0: Well, we love that. We love the recharge, and we think it's very, very important that ha- everybody has that ability to do that and feels feels free to do that, and it, it's probably a great time. COVID restrictions are mostly gone, so you can travel the world freely, but on to some of the questions. I think we found you, and it, it your background particularly stuck out to us because you have Kind of that hybrid of what we what we look for is a, a cool starting background in sales and then transitioning to people leader people executive you might just walk me through your background and how you made some of those key decisions in your career to move from sales to the people org
1: yeah absolutely so if you asked me you know 17 years ago if i thought that i would be a chief people officer i would probably have laughed uh, my career started off in sales And if you want to take it back uh, to the very beginning, my first real job was in a mall selling cell phones. And I was the person who would stop you and ask you to analyze your cell phone plan and try to switch you to the company that I was working for. Uh, Fast forward, uh, I moved into financial sales after I got my degree in finance. And I spent the majority of my career in financial sales. I worked with high net worth individuals like lottery winners, structured settlements, uh, musicians, uh, you name it. And uh purchased their annuities, we bulked them up, and then we securitized them. Um, but from there, my, my career transitioned into management positions, operations positions, and then eventually executive positions. And most recently, I was chief of staff when I was asked to take on a people leadership position. And I think the biggest lesson that I learned is just keeping an open mind. As I mentioned, you know, I would have never thought that I would... Uh, be a chief people officer, but truly I love it. It's the thing that I'm most passionate about. And, you know, I think when opportunities present itself, it's just important to keep an open mind and take that leap of faith.
0: Super cool. Super cool. So tons of uh, valuable experiences. And obviously you've worked with some really exceptional people in your past. I, I'm super curious about the lottery winners. Like what is, the, what is the biggest lottery winner in terms of dollar amount that you saw? I know the numbers have skyrocketed at least this year, into almost the billions.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Whenever you throw out the word lottery winner, people are like, tell me more. Or musicians as well. Those are the two uh, big buzzwords. Lottery winners work, worked with tens of millions of dollars and it was people who took the annuities. So structured in a lot of different ways and musicians, a lot of big names that you would recognize as well.
0: Well, super cool. Super cool. Uh, I don't mean to to run off on a tangent too much. So I want to transition back into our discussion more around the future of work and where you see everything going. So... In the more recent past, we have seen obviously with the COVID shutdowns and everything, people transition to this work remote or work hybrid or come to the office when you want type of environment. I'm curious to know your perspective as someone who has led a people org, like what is your take on what the world looks like maybe one, three, and five years out? Are we are we beholden to our to our our home offices forever? Or is there going to be a transition of folks back into the workplace?
1: Yeah, I think the one thing that remains constant throughout all of this is that the pendulum continues to swing one one direction or the other. And, you know, you look back two years ago and we all transitioned to working from home. You know, you look back, you know, six months ago, maybe even a year ago, you know, you see companies transitioning to you must be in the office. Some have hybrid approaches. It's all over the place. And I think, you know, if we look into the future, that pendulum is going to continue to swing one direction or the other. My personal opinion is finding some middle ground that works well for everyone. I personally believe in a hybrid approach where you get people in the office for moments of collaboration where it feels very valuable and you could interact with your colleagues and you could work on projects. And it's not necessarily you must be here, you know, from nine to five on these days because it doesn't necessarily fit everyone's lifestyle. So I think finding some kind of middle ground is what's most important. But you're going to continually see these companies. You know, I think Twitter is the the biggest buzzword right now, you know, where it's like you want to be in the office or they want you in the office all the time. And it
0: may work for some
1: companies. It depends on the structure, depends on what they're trying to do. But my personal approach is, is a hybrid push for sure
0: yeah makes sense makes sense i think i go back and forth on it more recently i felt this like need to get back into an office environment i think you miss so much of that like person to person interaction and what i've been thinking about a lot is like when the zoom ends right when you shut down that zoom recording it's pretty much just you and your thoughts and the only way you can get in touch with folks is to either like call them directly right right after but that like post meeting Hey, let's catch up about this. Or hey, I thought this idea you presented was super curious. Or I even am just a little confused at what you said. Could you could you help me understand X better? Exposure to maybe executives or mentors is missing. I'm curious to know if you have found a suitable replacement for that, or if there is even a replacement for that and and what that looks like.
1: Yeah, I've tried, <laughs> as has has every other executive and chief people officer. And Listen, there is technology that helps, but much like you, I actually agree that there is no suitable replacement. I think it's invaluable to have face-to-face time, like you said, to collaborate, to build relationships, just get those quick, you know, coffee chat answers. And I think just exposure, I believe we're naive to think that, you know, the people, you know, so the people who are working from home will have the same exposure of those who are in the office. I just don't think that that's true. And it's one of those things that's hard for me uh, to admit as a chief people officer, but I think we must equal the playing field and there really is no replacement for face-to-face time.
0: Yeah. I agree. I agree with you. It's a good point, too. So so I'm curious to know, from your perspective, what does that equal playing field look like? How do we install things either technology-based or otherwise to ensure that everybody's getting kind of that equal crack at exposure to management, exposure to leadership, exposure to great mentors in and out of the company that they work at?
1: Yeah, so I think that starts with the leadership at a company. I think you have to look at your policies and procedures. And are you holding everyone to the same standard where you must be hybrid, for example, and you must be in the office two days a week? Or are you allowing some team members to work permanently remote and other team members must come into the office? And I think if if you're in the latter section where everyone is not held to the same policy then I think it's up to leadership to create those moments of equality where leaders are spending more time with their remote team members, whether it's a casual coffee chat or a one-on-one or a skip-level meeting. I think it's up to leadership to really to build that equal playing field. And we could easily sit here and say it's up to the team members and the remote team members to reach out and to get that face time. But it doesn't
0: necessarily always work
1: in that direction. So I prefer a top-down approach uh, when the policies are sometimes preventing that.
0: Yeah, it's really, really smart. And I think you really have to be both practical and intentional about the policies that you put in place. And we're seeing this transition, I think, as a whole within the workplace to figuring out methods and trying to remove bias and communicating effectively with employees and, and, and applicants on how we can democratize that access within the company. I think it's, it's shifting. I don't think it's quite there yet. But I'm very excited and inspired by some of the companies that I see out there that are doing a really good job to build in these processes to make it equal for all and make access equal for all, especially within a company when you get in. I'm curious to know from your perspective, transitioning a little bit is when you're looking at or talking with somebody early in their career, how do you position them? or How do you get them thinking about not just like that? first year, first six months in the job, which they're really, really worried about, but what their career looks like maybe three years out or five years on how they best position themselves to succeed, even if it's not at the company that they're currently at.
1: Yeah, it's funny because I always love, you know, the question of where do you self- see yourself in five years or in 10 years? And if, again, if you asked me that five or 10 years ago, I would give you a totally different answer from where I'm at right now. So I don't think you need to have this linear path in mind, but I do think it's important to use the word intentionality or to be intentional. And I love that word. And I think that goes to your career path as well. And it could be something as uh, simple as making a certain commitment to yourself as far as, you know, pushing yourself or challenging yourself or just taking opportunities that come about. You know, for me early in my career, I was petrified of public speaking, I wanted to avoid every opportunity that came up to speak in public. And then finally, I had a leader who said, listen, you need to invest in yourself and you need to get over this and you need to do it. And, you know, now in my career, I speak in front of hundreds of people, sometimes on a weekly basis and making that commitment to yourself to take opportunities, to take on challenges that you may be uncomfortable doing and continuing to push yourself I, you know, again, I started my, my career in sales, but I took opportunities in other departments and other areas. And those are the opportunities I think that really pushed me and gave me the most career growth, you know, and moving outside my comfort zone.
0: Yeah, that's, that's exceptional advice. And I, it brings up something else, which we've heard a few times on the podcast and in other conversations with people, leaders as building in, uh, actual opportunities or allowing people to get that extra little nudge when they don't necessarily you know have that within them someone like like you early in your career probably identified sounds like identified some of the spots you wanted to improve on what do you think some of those initiatives are for folks that maybe don't have that like awareness or even like the ability to see kind of their blind spots and want to be pushed into a certain direction how can companies help folks uncover that and give them the ability to to go off and learn a new skill or go off and help themselves in their career expand what's available expand their opportunities expand their skill set
1: yeah absolutely so i think there are two different approaches you could take and you could take the very let's say corporate mindset approach where you have learning and development, and you could do things like skills assessments and improve areas where you're weak, or alternatively strengthen areas where you're strong. You could give professional development money, where it encourages you know your team members to go out and invest in themselves, whether it's through a conference or through you know some kind of technical certification. But at the end of the day. I think what's most important are the leaders that you have and the managers that you have. And I think the company should be training and coaching their management team and their leadership team to have conversations and to identify, you know, what's important to the people that they're working with. This could happen through one-on-ones. It could happen through an annual performance review where you're just asking, you know, where do you see yourself growing or what challenges do you have the next year? And it's really up to the manager to have this one-on-one conversations and emphasize why, you know, growth and professional development
0: is so critical to your career. Really, really tactical and good advice brings up something else, you know, as the like chief people officer purveyor of people and somebody who you know obviously has protection over the culture of a company i'm wondering what things you put in all across or what processes you put in place or even initiatives you put in place all across the chain from applicant all the way through you know years into someone's role that help you protect culture or inspire culture or create new culture within a company
1: Yeah. uh, So I won't be the first person to say this, but culture starts at the top. And I truly believe that. And I think it starts with your leadership team. It also starts with mission, vision, and values. And you need to have some some kind of guiding light in place, a North Star, where your leadership team's working towards, your management team's working towards. And that has to be distilled throughout every layer of the organization. And it could start as simple as mission, vision, values, So that's not usually a simple exercise to put in place, but it should be through, as you mentioned, your recruiting process. I think that's one of the most important things in a recruiting process is transparency. What type of company is this? Is this a mission-based company? Is it a revenue-based company? You know, what are you signing up for? And that'll help you attract the right people. And not one job is built for everyone. But if you attract the right people, it'll be better for the company. It'll be better for the individual. And then it's building it into the performance process. Um, are you living up to the vision, mission, values? You know, are you representing the culture in a positive way? So giving timely feedback and real feedback about, you know, if you're, you know, if, if you're working towards being part of this culture or not. You could reward people for it. There's a lot of different, you know, techniques that you could use, but I think starting at the top and having a leadership team that embodies the culture that you want is the most important thing.
0: Yeah. Super, super impactful and very strategic. And I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I fundamentally agree, right? The leaders at the company will set the tone and... Folks will end up, you know, whether they like it or not, and you're if you're in a leadership position, looking to you for guidance, even if it is just leading by example. So that is critically important. And something that I didn't realize until a little bit later in my career is that when you're a manager or when you're on management or in a leadership position, like eyes are on you whether you whether you like it or not, and when you whenever you like it or not, right? There are there are instances like even just showing up early in the morning or how you act at a social event where people do pay attention even when you don't think about it. So those are critically important moments for you. I'm curious to know, kind of off that culture leadership piece, when you think about what the future of work looks like, let's say, for example, we are in this hybrid or mm. you know mostly remote environment, how do you instill or inspire or spark culture when you are all working remotely and when you're all in different places in different locations,
1: yeah, I actually think that that's when culture is most important. You know, it's easier to build culture when you're all in the same place physically and you're, commu- you know, you're communicating all day, every day, and you see physical actions, like you mentioned. You know, are you coming in late? Are you leaving early? Um, I think that's easy. What's difficult and what's more important is when you have a distributed workforce. Um, how do you build culture? How do you hold people accountable for that culture? And again, you know, I think it's leadership. I think it's having having a framework of what your culture is and just putting in every single part of the process. I also think I need to speak to it regularly, like whether it's at a company meeting or town halls, you have to talk about culture. And it's one of those things as, as a people leader, you know, I've encountered some leaders where they love talking about culture, right? And uh, they feel like it's really important. Other leaders are like, culture, oh God, no, we want to talk about revenue and we want to talk about numbers. But I really believe that culture is what drives a company. It's what keeps people at companies. And it what it's what makes you, you know, actually perform very well is when you have everyone on the same page. So I think it's as important to talk about revenue and performance as it is to talk about culture. So I I just think communication constantly, just saying what your culture is, is really important.
0: Yeah, super, super cool And, and, and really important, right? Culture is something that is oftentimes fluffy, can't be quantified, but when you're in a company where, you know, the culture is great you can feel it and you can see it. And it's not always like every single day it's in your face, but it's the way that it's communicated and how, how the mission is communicated and how things are communicated with, uh, with each individual. So I I, I do love that. Curious to know from your perspective, who are some of the, or what are some of the themes you look for? Who are some of the minds you pay attention to when it comes to the future of work?
1: Yeah. So I've, loved watching this and it's been really interesting because I think it's all over the place right now and you know I talked earlier about that pendulum swinging and it's never been more true where you see complete polar opposites and you see companies who are back to work five days a week saying we want a hardcore culture and we want you there twenty four hours a day and then we have companies on the other side that are all about um, mental health and wellness and flexibility and remote work. so I I'm actually enjoying watching both sides of the conversation, and you see a lot of companies and thought leaders on on either side. But for me, I've liked seeing the polar opposites, and uh, it brings up interesting conversation. And for me, I, I don't think either one is right or wrong. I think it's about what's important for that company what helps that company meet its goals and recruit the right people. And we talked about a little bit transparency in the recruiting process. And I think that's key. I think as long as you're transparent in the recruiting process and people know what they're signing up for, that's what matters. And the companies, or the people that want to work for a company that's a hardcore work culture will go there. And the other ones who are valuing, you know, mental health and well-being will go to those companies. And it's not right or wrong, it's finding the right fit for the right company.
0: Yeah, super, super important and really, really good point. It kind of brings up a an offshoot question or offshoot comment here. Something that we pay attention to heavily at Ramped is how you are treated during that interview process, what an applicant experience is like. It's critically important and it's important for many, many reasons. But for you, I imagine as somebody who's has been at financial services institutions and seeing what it's like to work with clients directly for some of these big companies, these institutions that maybe see hundreds of thousands of applications, someone like, you know, an E-Trade or a Fidelity, et cetera. A lot of times if those types of institutions don't have locked in interview processes, they're not only eliminating applicants who probably have feelings about the way they were treated within an interview process they are eliminating potential future customers up there. So it's double damage to their brand. So that that is something that we pay close attention to. We hear quite often uh, just an up-leveled interview experience with awareness over who is going to be interviewing you and what to expect results in a near 100% satisfaction with the interview process. Something very little is just like, tell me who I'm interviewing with. Help me understand what they care about. It's not giving them the cheat code for for that interview. It's just straight up informing them. And a lot of this t- this stuff eliminates the bias with an interview process as well. Like some people just don't have access to understanding what an interview process is like. I'm curious to know maybe on on your standpoint from your page, like what are some of the things that you can put into an interview process to give folks that leveling up or Eliminate some of those inherent biases that may exist with, like, a resume or just a simple application form.
1: Yeah, I love talking about the Canada experience and Canada lifecycle. I'm so passionate about this. And I think one, you need to have a strong process in place. And I know for a larger company, um, it may be difficult, but I think a actually even more important. And you hit the nail on the head that these are potential future customers. And if they're not customers, they know someone who's going to be a customer. And this not only impacts your brand, but it impacts your your performance at the end of the day as well. Also, just simply said, like, these are people that we're dealing with. They're people that have invested time to apply at your company. And like, there's no reason not to be kind. So I think establishing a process for your recruiting process is critical. And It'll look very different at, you know, a 50 person company versus, you know, a couple thousand person company. But my mindset around this is if the candidate has invested more time than simply just, you know, submitting a resume, then at each stage of the process, the company should invest more time. So, you know, sometimes you submit a resume and a company has to send you that automatic response of, hey, we decided to go a different path. I respect that you have thousands of applicants, you have to do that. But then there's companies who have projects or, you know, document submission that you have to go through and to get an automated response at that stage where you've invested probably hours of your life. I think it's just inhumane. It's not kind. And I get the, also there's a balance right between the HR side of this, of you want to limit your risk and not open up liability providing feedback if a candidate has invested a certain amount of time is critical. Um, So I think it's just looking at every stage of the process and figuring out what the appropriate response is from a company perspective. And as you get to a higher stage, the company and the recruiting team specifically must invest more time. On the bias part of it, you know, it's a hard thing to do, but I think it's also important to really look at every stage of your process and see where there's bias. And it could be something as simple at the resume stage of a lot of companies say, you must have, you know, a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, well, is there equivalent experience or is there something you can look at because maybe that person didn't have the same opportunity to go to college or removing unconscious bias through the manager? So there's a, there's a lot of different tools and techniques that I've put in place and i have used over the years to do this. But I think you really need to look at every single step, every single touch point of the recruiting process and figuring out where bias could possibly come into place and how you could uh, remove it. It's critical
0: yeah really well thought out and and something that is so important and often just goes unnoticed and it's not that hard to do right it's not that hard to like build these processes in from the from the from the get go and so many companies just forget about it or don't even do it you know intentionally they're just not paying attention to it the ones who do will end up being the winners especially in a remote hybrid world because that's the lens that folks get to see they don't get to go into an office necessarily and have this robust interview process and experience and see the culture and see some of the goodies that you may get during an interview they get the the virtual experience you know what are the questions that you're being asked how are you treated when you when you submitted your resume online, how were you treated when somebody reached out to you for an initial screen, et cetera. So I think that the winners will certainly reveal themselves to be the ones that are doing exactly what you just said and, and paying attention, close attention to how that interview is conducted. Well, I have one last question to get you out of here before we, we kind of wrap. But off of this topic of, you know, unbiased interviews and, and companies that appear to be the winners, like who are the companies that you pay attention to when you like to think of like the perfect interview experience, you know, more for our, for our audience too, as somebody who could be looking for that first job, like what are those companies or who are those companies and where do they sit?
1: Yeah, I'll shamelessly promote my last company and I'll do this just because I know the work and the effort that we put in to completely revamping our recruiting process from stage zero to to being hired. And we looked at every single touch with the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we did that from the language that we put on our job postings to encourage candidates to apply from different backgrounds or different education levels, to in the process, talking about our diversity initiatives, talking about how this is important the back end of reporting on our data twice a year we went to our to the entire company and we we reported on our applicants and who we ended up hiring and what diversity looked like throughout the company and areas where we could improve you know no one's perfect and i think a lot of the times uh, companies honestly get scared when it comes to talking about diversity, because they get scared that they're gonna say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And no one's perfect, like we are all continuing to learn. And I think it's that commitment to learning and to growing and continuing to improve that's important. So I I would recommend Unison because they've completely revamped their entire recruiting process to make it as fair and equal as possible. And it's one of the things that I'm most proud of in my career.
0: Amazing, amazing. We, We do love, we do love plugs. The shameless plugging on this, on this show, it's totally good, totally good and totally warranted. And that's one of the reasons that we, we found you in the first place, Holly. So appreciate that. Well, before I let you go, where can folks find you if they want to reach out?
1: Yeah, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. So you can just find me at, at Holly Danko, H-O-L-L-Y-D-A-N-K-O.
0: Awesome. Well, Holly, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you, picking your brain on so many different topics. We know our audience is going to absolutely love this episode of The Ramp Podcast. And thank you so much for your appearance. And we hope to have you back sometime soon.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Danny. Thank you for listening to The Ramp Podcast. To access our show notes, the Ramped platform, or to become a corporate partner, visit www.RampedCareers.com or email us at sales at RampedCareers.com. This podcast is brought to you by Ramped, Ramped is on a mission to democratize job access through learning and career discovery. Until next time.